Once again, a warning. This week's opening has a description of an actual lynching. I'm afraid it's extremely graphic and is certainly not appropriate for young listeners. If you'd prefer to skip it, the main body of the podcast begins at 3 minutes 39 seconds. It was a warm spring evening around sundown on May 8, 1916, on the Friar Plantation in Robinson, Texas, near Waco. The cotton had all been planted and was coming up in the fields. Lucy Fryer's daughter was passing by the family's seed shed on the way to call her brother from the field to come in for supper when she saw something that made her heart stop. There by the shed was her mother on the ground, blood on her face from a wound to her forehead. It looked like she had been struck by something very hard. She tried to wake her mother, but she was unresponsive. The daughter screamed and her family came running but there was nothing they could do. Her mother was dead. Her father, George Fryer, immediately began accusing their feeble-minded field hand, Jesse Washington, for the murder. The daughter saw the surprise and terror on Jesse's face and wondered, in her dazed state, how her father could have known it was him. In the coming weeks, she would hear the whispers that it was her father who had murdered her mother. Everyone knew never to say such things too loudly. Everyone, that is, except A.T. Smith, the African-American editor of a local weekly newsletter. For his troubles in reprinting a Chicago Defender article that made the case for George Fryer having killed his wife, Smith was arrested, charged with libel, and sentenced to a year hard labor on a chain gang. Jesse, meanwhile, was immediately arrested. No one knows what happened in those first couple days following the arrest but the police eventually produced a confession with Jesse's mark. Jesse could neither read nor sign it, as he was illiterate. It became clear that he didn't understand what was going on at his trial when he entered his plea. Asked whether he pleaded guilty or not guilty, Jesse answered, Yes. A large crowd had gathered outside the courthouse at his well-publicized trial. Most estimates of the crowd size are over 10,000. Some estimate it was closer to 15,000. Jesse Washington's trial didn't take all that long, and it included the accusation of rape as well as murder, as tended to happen in the Old South. The jury deliberated for all of four minutes. When the verdict was announced, the mob who had gathered for this purpose stormed into the courthouse, put a chain around Jesse's neck, and dragged him outside. As they were dragging him to the site where he would be lynched, Jesse was beaten with shovels, clubs, and bricks, and even stabbed with knives. One person cut off an ear for a souvenir. Another castrated him. Next, Jesse was doused with oil, and a second chain was put around his neck. Then he was hoisted into the air while a fire was lit beneath him. Jesse Washington was hung from a tree and burned for his accused offenses. When it was all over... Local schoolboys pulled out his teeth and sold them for $5 apiece. Other body parts were sold as souvenirs as well. Links in the chain that held him aloft while his oiled body burned in the hot Texas sun went for 25 cents.
Welcome to Nearest Fiddle, episode 29. If you can't have slavery, a bit of terrorism will do. An account of Jesse Washington's lynching makes for very grisly reading, as accounts of lynchings always do. I include it as it's important for Americans to remember the amazing things we've accomplished, as well as the dark side of our past. I was raised in a country that taught its children only the great and heroic side of American history. The biggest problem with this is that when we don't acknowledge our past mistakes, we don't move past them. I chose to include Jesse Washington's lynching, but sadly, I could have chosen any of more than 4,000 documented lynchings that occurred between 1890 and 1950. Really? Beginning in 2014, we all heard and were appalled by reports of several Islamic State or ISIS beheadings of Americans and others they had captured from other countries. There were a handful of these beheadings, and Americans were rightfully shocked. But 4,000? For the 60 years between 1890 and 1950, that amounts to just over 66 Americans captured, tortured, and killed every year. We're not talking about a small handful of Americans murdered by foreign terrorists, which, yes, was shocking. No, we're looking back at a large number of Americans who were routinely tortured and murdered by American terrorists. What's perhaps most shocking about these terrorists is that they had overwhelming support from their fellow Americans within the states they were operating. It's not that people turn their heads and refuse to report them to the authorities. It's that the authorities themselves were actually in on it. And people turned out, en masse, to watch the torture, apparently deriving great enjoyment from it. This wasn't a 19th century crowd of Englishmen and women turning out for a public execution by lawful authorities. It wasn't even a 16th century crowd gathered to be entertained by bear baiting or to watch dogs attack and kill one another. This took humanity all the way back to the Neolithic Age, with people gathering in the central square of Uruk, or perhaps to Nochtitlan, to watch the priests sacrifice enemy captives. How can this be? Massive numbers of Americans acting like Stone Age savages? And this went on until the 1960s, which is well within the lifetimes of many of us. Is it true, as some have claimed, that we're all savages at heart, and there's just a patina of civilization that separates us from other animals? A patina that can often be wiped away with very little provocation? Let's look at how we got there. To begin with, I recommend you watch Gone with the Wind if you've never seen it, or rewatch it if you haven't seen it in a long time. As you do, Remember that the book was written by a white Southern woman who knew Southern culture intimately. Note the gentility of high Southern culture and how slavery just doesn't seem to be all that bad. When I was a kid, I was struck with how, quote, cultured the South seemed. But I was a kid. Now, of course, we know it wasn't culture at all. The entire economy and culture of the South rested on the foundation of cruelty we discussed in episode 27 that was the core of the slave economy. 
Southern plantation owners weren't kind gentlemen who were unaware of what their overseers were doing. They purposely chose malicious overseers when, as we've seen, their better interests would have been served by treating their slaves more kindly. They were typically cruel men who used their exaggerated charm and civility as masks of their true nature. The great chain of being had provided those at the top of the social hierarchy with not only the wealth and power, but also the status that people in agrarian cultures had craved since the founding of cities like Jericho and Uruk. The breaking of the great chain would begin with what we've termed the second axis. When thinkers like Montesquieu, Condorcet, Newton, Kant, and Rousseau would teach Europeans to turn from their ancient answers in religion to science, philosophy, and the natural world, to explain everything from why there's an epidemic of smallpox this year to how society should be structured and why it functions as it does. It would be left to the pen of Thomas Jefferson to define that most basic of American beliefs that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's commonly commented how ironic it was for a slaveholder to declare that all men are created equal. What our Declaration of Independence does, therefore, is to declare all white men to be equal, but the status of women and non-whites has been in dispute ever since. It's human nature that many want to think of themselves as superior to others. This is why hunter-gatherers socialize humility into their tribe, because, as one hunter-gatherer put it, if a man becomes too arrogant, he will kill you. The small, rocky nature of New England farms, with their shorter growing seasons, didn't lend themselves to slavery. They were generally owned and tilled by one family. The large, flat fields of the South, with their long, hot summers, on the other hand, did lend themselves to large plantations and slavery, as did the raising of both tobacco and cotton. In the South, therefore, generation after generation of slave-owning allowed plantation owners to hold on to the last vestige of the great chain of being. If they couldn't get noble titles that declared they were superior to other whites, as the upper-class British had always enjoyed, they had one final portion of the great chain. For them, they were unquestionably superior to their slaves. And it was this belief in their superiority that they held on to with every fiber of their beings. By dehumanizing their slaves, they asserted their superiority. By brutalizing and punishing their slaves far beyond any possible measure of their transgression, they affirmed their station at the highest level of society. By building the miserable sheds, that would house their slaves in long lines along even longer driveways that ran up to their plantation mansions. They showed all those who came to see them how superior they were to those unhappy wretches who tilled their soil and tended and picked their cotton. This was a worldview they happily exported to all the less affluent white Southerners. It both confirmed their position at the top of the Southern social hierarchy and allowed all Southerners down to the poor white trash, to feel superior to those at the bottom of society. For the Southerners, 
there was one great problem with all this. In the North, there was a loud and growing abolition movement threatening to put an end to their way of life. When the country elected the anti-slavery candidate Abraham Lincoln, the South didn't even wait to see if he was going to end slavery. South Carolina seceded from the Union after Lincoln was elected, but before he was even inaugurated. We haven't talked extensively about war in this podcast, but don't get it wrong. It's been with us every step of the way. Sometimes, as in the Dark or Middle Ages, kings like Charlemagne would go to war to gain territory and riches. It was a way to settle disputes. That reactive aggression we talked about as early as Adam and Eve is still with us. When one state squared off against another state, they felt the same antagonistic feelings that caused Adam and Eve's tribe to fight off a neighboring tribe rather than share a watering hole that might have had plenty of water for everybody. It got a lot more complicated during the Civil War. These were our southern or northern brothers who were asking our soldiers to fight and kill. Sometimes the division occurred literally between families and brothers. But life can be messy, and it certainly was during the Civil War. War was the accepted means of settling disputes between states that couldn't come to an agreement by other means. And civil wars have been very common in Western history. Another significant factor for this particular civil war would soon become obvious. War technology had improved tremendously in the past 100 years. Soldiers now all carried muskets that were deadly from a distance of 50 to 100 yards. The invention of the rifle meant that some soldiers carried guns that were deadly at even further distances, and heavy artillery was now quite mobile and could be brought with the army to virtually any battlefield. Not only could it be very deadly at a distance, but a volley of grape shot could be horrific for charging troops. If this wasn't enough, the Gatling gun, an early precursor to the machine gun, was invented during the Civil War. All of this new killing technology meant for battlefields that were far more deadly than any battlefields before in the history of warfare, a few battles of the Napoleonic Wars excepted. Battlefield tactics hadn't kept up with the new technologies. Essentially, after an artillery barrage, an entrenched enemy would face a charging line of attackers. The attacking force would have to charge over a field usually chosen by the defending army being fired on the whole way. Casualties in the Civil War were horrendous. Half of all deaths of U.S. soldiers in all the wars that America has fought were in the Civil War. Not only were Civil War battlefields fields of slaughter, but hygiene and medical practices were in their infancy compared to where they would be by World War II. Of those who died in the Civil War, probably two soldiers died by disease probably caused by poor sanitary conditions, for every soldier that was killed on the field of battle. The official total number of casualties is 620,000, but modern historians think the number is significantly higher. If you're going to argue that the Southerners didn't go to war simply to protect states' rights, but also to prevent abolition and to protect their way of life, which is, of course, correct, then you must acknowledge that Northerners went to war, at least in part, to finally expunge the scourge of slavery from their country. 
how much of the motivation of Union troops was to abolish slavery? It's hard to say, but it was certainly a major part of the North's motivation. So America maintained one of the most brutal systems of slavery in human history, and also, at least in part, shed more blood to overturn that institution than any other nation. In his first inaugural address, President Lincoln spoke about the better angels of our nature. What a great phrase. Nothing exemplifies the fact that Americans are motivated by both the better angels of our nature as well as the darker angels as much as the Civil War. Each side turned out in massive numbers to fight to either maintain the institution of slavery or abolish it. At the beginning of the war, the Union was clearly outgeneraled by the South. The South won five of the eight major battles in the first year of the war. Fort Sumter, the First Battle of Bull Run, Wilson's Creek, Leesburg, and Chustanola. The Union won only three you haven't heard of unless you're a Civil War buff. Rich Mountain, Carnifex Ferry, and Cheat Mountain. The South just ended up with more talent on their side in the higher ranks of the military. Part of this is that the South's most talented and most famous general, Robert E. Lee, was torn between his loyalty to the United States and his loyalty to his home state. In the end, Lee sided with his state in treason, giving the South probably the most talented general in the war. So if the South had more talented generals, why didn't the North win? This isn't an episode on the ins and outs of the Civil War, so I'll just give you my answer. Part of the reason is that Lincoln finally found General Grant, who was able to win battles. But the main reason is the same reason we were on the winning side in World War I and World War II. The North had a stronger and more resilient economy and manufacturing base. As the war got into its third and fourth year, the South just didn't have the manufacturing base to continue to feed its population and supply its army, while the North was capable of stocking its army with sufficient men and munitions. In the end, the North won because it had the resources to undertake a long and protracted war, and the South didn't. The assassination of Lincoln at the end of the Civil War meant that his vice president, Andrew Johnson, a congressman from Tennessee, took over the role of president. Johnson was deeply prejudiced, and he pardoned virtually all the Confederate officers and enlisted men, returned land that had been distributed to slaves in order to help them begin their new lives, and allowed southern states to have a free hand in passing their own laws governing the new relationships between the whites and the newly freed slaves. As a result, the southern states passed what were known as the Black Codes. These laws were brutal to the blacks in the South and put blacks in little better condition than they were under slavery. In response to these draconian laws, the Republican-controlled legislature took control of Reconstruction. There seems to be an ongoing debate in this country whether government can help effect change for the general good or whether, as President Reagan famously put it, government is the problem. We need to look no further than Reconstruction to determine whether government can be an enormous force for good in this country. As a result of Reconstruction, hundreds of black candidates were elected to state office. For the first and only time in our nation's history, 
South Carolina had a majority of black legislators. There were also several African-American members of the House of Representatives, and even two in the Senate. Black men gained the right to vote under the 15th Amendment. Blacks refused to accept their inferior status in white churches, and African-American churches were soon thriving. Schools were set up in states like South Carolina that were open to children of all races. Although the Ku Klux Klan attempted to intimidate blacks into submission, it was disbanded in some places after more than 1,000 members were tried for crimes such as vandalism, arson, looting, and murder. The Freedmen's Bureau helped establish schools for former slaves, helped them find jobs and safe homes, and distributed food and clothing. Under Reconstruction, the lives of the former slaves improved significantly. During this time, Congress drafted and subsequently passed one of the most important bills in the history of the United States, the 14th Amendment. They made this an amendment to the Constitution so that, once ratified, it would be close to impossible to repeal it. The 14th Amendment was ratified in 1868. This was an amazing amendment that provided for citizenship for all persons born or naturalized in the U.S., assured that no state would abridge the privileges and immunities of the citizens of the United States, nor deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, and guaranteed equal protection under the laws. Union troops had died in order to free slaves and give them a chance at the American dream. With the 14th Amendment and Reconstruction, the door was open for the former slaves, and they were working hard to achieve the American dream. They say all good things must come to an end, and whether that's true or not, they did for Southern blacks. The South fought bitterly against Reconstruction from the beginning and there was a great amount of conflict in the U.S. throughout the period of Reconstruction. Essentially, as the Union had outlasted the South in the Civil War, the South outlasted the North in the political battle that followed it. In 1877, there was a highly contested presidential election. Congress eventually threw up his hands, and in what is unofficially called the Compromise of 1877, Rutherford B. Hayes was awarded a majority of the Electoral College votes in return for the federal government pulling all troops from the South, ending Reconstruction. Without a federal government presence to enforce rights of Southern blacks, Southern whites swung into full gear to oppress them as they had under Andrew Johnson. They couldn't do it by themselves, however. To truly deny blacks the rights they had been promised and guaranteed by the passage of the 14th Amendment, they needed an ally. An ally the framers of our Constitution never saw coming, the Supreme Court. Over the course of a series of legal decisions, the Supreme Court gutted the 14th Amendment. There's been a fair amount of talk recently about jury nullification. This is the practice of a jury acquitting a criminal defendant when they believe him or her to be guilty because they feel the law is unjust. What isn't discussed, but is far more serious, is what I call Supreme Court nullification. Supreme Court nullification, my term, is a very old and well-established practice by our nation's highest court. 
It's the practice in which our nation's Supreme Court nullifies a law that Congress has passed and defines it as something Congress clearly didn't intend for it to mean in order to nullify the law. In the case of Plessy v. Ferguson, the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment was before the court. Homer Plessy, who was one-eighth black and seven-eighths white, was arrested for riding in a whites-only railroad car in violation of Louisiana's Separate Car Act of 1890. Though the 14th Amendment was clearly designed to prevent the denial of equal protection of its laws to any U.S. citizen, the Supreme Court gutted the effect of the 14th Amendment by saying that, quote, It could not have been intended to abolish distinctions based upon color or enforce social as distinguished from political equality or a commingling of the two races upon terms satisfactory to either. This, of course, is exactly what the 14th Amendment had intended to do. But in other words, the Supreme Court now ushered in the era of separate but equal, even though separate was inherently unequal, and in almost no case were the black and white accommodations equal. These things were now a matter for racist white governments to decide. No reasonable reading of the 14th Amendment or the legislative history behind the amendment could lead to this result. But, the Supreme Court said, if one race be inferior to the other socially, the Constitution of the United States cannot put them on the same plane. With Plessy versus Ferguson, the Supreme Court ushered in the Jim Crow era. But the Supreme Court wasn't done nullifying the 14th Amendment with Plessy, not by a long shot. In a series of cases, including what are known as the Slaughterhouse Cases and U.S. v. Crickshank, the Supreme Court managed to gut the protections promised to the now ex-slaves under the 14th Amendment and allow the white supremacist governments of the South to make their own laws regarding the governing of blacks and whites. Much is made of the Jim Crow laws, laws restricting voting rights and other restrictions against blacks during the Jim Crow era. I think the most important actions taken by Southern governments during the Jim Crow era are what they didn't do. During the Reconstruction era, the Ku Klux Klan had expanded significantly and had certainly committed numerous violent acts against freely elected African-American congressmen and others. Yet, as happened in South Carolina, many in the KKK were prosecuted and the organization remained deeply underground. Once Reconstruction was over, however, the federal troops pulled out of the South, and this is when the Southern law enforcement was able to look the other way and selectively not pursue investigation and prosecution of attacks by the KKK and the handful of other white supremacist groups that were using terrorism to intimidate African Americans from asserting their rights. So in the 1890s, then, Every southern state passed constitutional amendments limiting African-American voting rights by implementing such things as poll taxes, property requirements, and literacy tests. By 1895, African-American voting had declined by 65%. By 1900, it had almost stopped. Lynchings, which had started up soon after the Civil War as covert occasional acts of terrorism, 
were no longer underground following the end of Reconstruction and rulings such as Plessy v. Ferguson. They became common, open public affairs, with large crowds gathering to enjoy the slow torture and ultimate murder of the lynching victim. The fiction grew up that these were largely to avenge the honor of white women who had been raped by predatory blacks. The truth was far different. You have to ask. If anyone knew the penalty for raping a particular class of woman would be long, horrible public torture, followed by public execution, would they commit that offense, especially in the numbers it was allegedly committed in the post-Reconstruction South? African-American journalist Ida B. Wells compiled a list of offenses that led to actual lynchings. These offenses included insubordination, talking disrespectfully, striking a white man, slapping a white boy, writing an insulting letter, a personal debt of 50 cents, a funeral bill of $10, organizing sharecroppers, and simply being too prosperous. Really? You're going to torture and kill someone because they're a bit too prosperous or owe 50 cents? I don't think so. A debt of 50 cents isn't ever a reason to kill anyone. It's a pretext. Okay, if it's a pretext, then why the pretext? Modern scholarship has found that the Nazis loved southern white nationalists who terrorized the blacks in their midst. What they found was what the white terrorists of the South had learned, especially in South Carolina and other majority black states. Terror doesn't have to be ubiquitous for it to be effective, and it certainly doesn't have to be consistent. In fact, using terrorism in an inconsistent fashion makes it all the more effective. It's best if the targeted population doesn't know where it will strike or who will be its next victim. And so, lynchings were not done as any kind of centrally planned strategy. They occurred here and there as mobs rose and ran their bloody course. By at least one scholar's count, in the 1880s, there were 76 lynchings in the South every year. In the 1890s, 111. In the first decade of the 20th century, there averaged 79 lynchings of African Americans every year. It was important for white supremacists to be able to function openly in broad daylight during their lynchings and to draw crowds. This was their way of advertising to the repressed class that there's no one you can turn to. If we come after you, there's no one who will protect you, and there will be nothing you can do. If we come after you, you'll be tortured mercilessly, and then you will be killed. Maybe it'll be for saying something that a white person might take as insulting. It might be because a white person thought you were insolent. And in such a manner, if everyone in a repressed population fears that, at any time, they might be the one plucked out with no notice, tortured, and killed, then everyone will keep their head down. Everyone will keep quiet, nobody will make waves, and no one will attempt to organize any resistance for fear of being the next strange fruit. This worked well through the 1890s and the first decade of the 20th century. Then lynchings began to decline somewhat, 
From 1910 to 1917, they fell to an average of 50 black souls per year. By that time, the Ku Klux Klan had been disbanded. The Progressive Era, commonly recognized as from 1897 to 1920, didn't have a lot of support for the militant white nationalism that had followed the fall of Reconstruction. Then one man changed all that. In 1915, Hollywood released its first feature-length motion picture, D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation. This movie was technically far superior to anything that had come before it. It was a masterpiece of white nationalist propaganda that glorified the Ku Klux Klan. That's right. America's first great motion picture was a movie glorifying the Ku Klux Klan. It struck a chord with a still very racist white America and was a major hit, causing a huge resurgence of interest and membership in the KKK. With that, the KKK was refounded. This clan was not only anti-black, but anti-Catholic, Jew, and really any foreign-born minority. With this expansion of targets and hate, membership in the Ku Klux Klan expanded exponentially. Now it was not only in the South, but spread massively in the Midwest and the West. By some estimates, membership ballooned to 4 million in the 1920s. Lynchings even increased by almost 20% for a few years following birth of a nation. And thus, we entered the Great Depression with a huge portion of white America involved in a spiteful hate group. Jim Crow laws alive and well, and lynchings, though on the decline, still a very real reality for Southern blacks. Thousands of Americans worked tirelessly for years and years in the abolition movement and were passionate about ending slavery. Then, during the Civil War, more Americans gave their lives for this cause than for any other in American history. It's true that Union soldiers' motivations to enlist were complex, but abolition was a strong motivation for many. The abolition cause certainly deserves an episode of its own, and remember, we're looking for historical drivers that continue to have ongoing relevance to our current battle to reduce greenhouse emissions and slow climate change. The abolition movement began in the 1820s and lasted until slavery was outlawed with the 13th Amendment. A large percentage of the population in the North worked tirelessly to end an evil that affected the lives of people that lived perhaps a thousand miles away and they would never meet. We call this propensity of people to work hard to better the lives of people they'll never know, the Better Angels historical driver. They worked for many years until an anti-slavery president was elected. When Lincoln was elected, the southern states seceded and the war to end slavery was on. This Better Angel driver is alive and well today. Thousands and thousands of non-blacks marched alongside blacks in the civil rights movement of the 1960s, boarded buses and traveled to the South as freedom riders, and more. 
More recently, people of all races join Black Lives Matter protests. There is, and always has been, a very strong element of Americans who are deeply concerned about the lives of others and are committed to working to keep the moral wheel of American history moving ever forward. This driver led to the Civil War, the abolition of slavery, and the Civil Rights Movement, and it is alive and well today. In the South, our better angels drivers was not, shall we say, the predominant driver. Justifications for slavery were ubiquitous in the South. They liked it. They had all they needed. They were fed and housed and never had to worry about where their next meal was coming from. Slavery was best for them. They wouldn't be able to care for themselves without it. You name it. If you were to ask almost any Southerner back then, there would be a justification. They could actually make themselves believe that slavery was not only a good thing, but it was the best thing for those who were so brutally enslaved, beaten, and persecuted. After slavery, Northern Republicans proved that federal government oversight, including the stationing of troops in the South during Reconstruction, could make all the difference in beginning to right the wrongs of slavery and give the newly freed slaves a chance at living a safe, comfortable life with the protections of the brand new 14th Amendment. Alas, before long, there would be a Supreme Court that would nullify the 14th Amendment and a political deal that would see Rutherford B. Hayes, a little-remembered president, sworn into office in exchange for the end of Reconstruction and withdrawal of federal troops from the South. With the end of Reconstruction and federal troops in the South, was it time to mend fences and begin the healing that was so necessary after this country's long foray into slavery and civil war? Was it time to address this amazing group of Americans who had withstood their unjust repression with such dignity and try to make amends? Sadly, no. It was time to terrorize this minority that had been so mistreated for so long. It was time to make sure they knew that if they tried to stand up for their rights, they could expect to be abducted, brutally tortured, and then killed. It was Americans in our own country who would pioneer the use of terror to subjugate and repress a minority. Their tactics would later be taken up by the Nazis. So here we are in the era of the modern nation-state, in which government can be a tremendously positive force in the lives of its less fortunate citizens, as it was during Reconstruction or it can harm them even more disastrously as it did by state-enforced slavery or simply by standing back and allowing mob rule to terrorize a victimized population. As Americans entered the early decades of the 20th century, both the better angel and darker angels of their nature were on display. Many of the political struggles over the last hundred years can be boiled down to a fight between these two poles. This week's read is The Bloody Shirt, Terror After the Civil War, by Stephen Budiansky. It's a real eye-opener. If I could, I'd make this book required reading for anyone who wants to understand race relations in our country today. Enjoy. See you next week.